Chapter twenty three of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter twenty three. Without investigating her motives, Irene Derwent deferred as long as possible her meeting with the man to whom she had betrothed herself. Nor did Arnold Jacks evince any serious impatience in this matter. They corresponded in affectionate terms, exchanging letters once a week or so. Arnold, as it chanced, was unusually busy, his particular section of the British Empire supplying sundry problems just now not to be hurriedly dealt with by those in authority. There was much drawing up of reports and translating of facts into official language in Arnold's secretarial department. Of these things he spoke to his bride-elect as freely as discretion allowed, and Irene found his letters interesting. The ladies in Cheshire were forewarned of the new Irene who was about to visit them. Political differences did not at all affect their kindliness. Indeed, they saw with satisfaction the girl's keen mood of loyalty to the man of her choice. She brought with her the air of Greater Britain. She spoke much and well of the destinies of the Empire. "'I see it all more clearly since this bit of colonial experience,' she said. "'Our work in the world is marked out for us. "'We have no choice unless we turn cowards. "'Of course we shall be hated by other countries more and more. "'We shall be accused of rapacity and arrogance "'and everything else that's disagreeable in a large way. "'We can't help that. "'If we enrich ourselves, that is a legitimate reward for the task we perform. "'England means liberty and enlightenment. "'Let England spread to the ends of the earth.' we mustn't be afraid of greatness we can't stop still less draw back our politics have become our religion our rulers have a greater responsibility than was ever known in the world's history and they will be equal to it the listeners felt that a little clapping of the hands would have been appropriate they exchanged a glance as if consulting each other as to the permissibility of such applause but Irene's eloquent eyes and glowing colour excited more admiration than criticism. In their hearts they wished joy to the young life which would go on its way through an ever-changing world long after they and their old-fashioned ideas had passed into silence. In a laughing moment, Irene told them of the proposal she had received from Trafford Romaine. This betokened her high spirits, and perchance indicated a wish to make it understood that her acceptance of Arnold Jacks was no unconsidered impulse. The ladies were interested, but felt this confidence something of an indiscretion, and did not comment upon it. They hoped she would not be tempted to impart her secret to persons less capable of respecting it. During these days there came a definite invitation from Mrs. Borisoff, who was staying in Hampshire at the house of her widowed mother, and Irene gladly accepted it. She wished to see more of Helen Borisoff, whose friendship, she felt, might have a significance for her at this juncture of life. The place and its inhabitants, she found on arriving, answered very faithfully to Helen's description. An old manor-house, beautifully situated, hard by a sleepy village. Its mistress, a rather prim woman of sixty, conventional in every thought and act, but too good-natured to be aggressive, and living with her two unmarried daughters, whose sole care was the spiritual and material well-being of the village poor. 
where i come from i really don't know said helen to her friend my father was the staidest of country gentlemen i'm a sport plainly you will see my mother watch me every now and then with apprehension i fancy it surprises her that i really do behave myself that i don't even say anything shocking with you the dear old lady is simply delighted i know she prays that i may not harm you you are the first respectable acquaintance i have made since my marriage in the lovely old garden in the still meadows and on the sheep-cropped hillsides they had many a long talk now that irene was as good as married mrs borisoff used less reserve in speaking of her private circumstances she explained the terms on which she stood with her husband marriage my dear girl is of many kinds absurd to speak of it as one and indivisible there's the marriage of interest the marriage of reason the marriage of love and each of these classes can be almost infinitely subdivided for the majority of folk i'm quite sure it would be better not to choose their own husbands and wives but to leave it to sensible friends who wish them well in england at all events they think they marry for love but that's mere nonsense did you ever know a love-match i never even heard of one in my little world well she added with her roguish smile putting yourself out of the question irene's countenance betrayed a passing inquietude she had an air of reflection averted her eyes and did not speak the average male or female is never in love pursued helen they are incapable of it and in this matter i moi qui vous parle am average at least i think i am all evidence goes to prove it so far i married my husband because i thought him the most interesting man i had ever met that was eight years ago when i was two-and-twenty curiously i didn't try to persuade myself that i was in love i take credit for this my dear no it was a marriage of reason i had money which mr borisoff had not he really liked me and does still but we are reasonable as ever if we felt obliged to live always together we should be very uncomfortable as it is i travel for six months when the humour takes me and it works a merveille into my husband's life i don't inquire i have no right to do so and i am not by nature a busybody as for my own affairs mr borisoff is not uneasy he has great faith in me which speaking frankly i quite deserve i am my dear irene a most respectable woman there comes in my parentage then said irene looking at her own beautiful fingernails your experience after all is disillusion moderate disillusion replied the other with her humorously judicial air i'm not grievously disappointed i still find my husband an interesting a most interesting man both of us being so thoroughly reasonable our marriage may be called a success well, clearly then you don't think love a sine qua non oh clearly not love has nothing whatever to do with marriage in the statistical the ordinary sense of the term when i say love i mean love not domestic affection marriage is a practical concern of mankind at large love is a personal experience of the very few 
think of our common phrases such as choice of a wife think of the perfectly sound advice given by sage elders to the young who are thinking of marriage implying deliberation care what have these things to do with love you can no more choose to be a lover than to be a poet nascitur non fit oh yes i know my latin generally the man or woman born for love is born for nothing else oh a deplorable state of things exclaimed irene laughing yes oh no who knows such people ought to die young but i don't say that is invariably the case to be capable of loving and at the same time to have other faculties and the will to use them ah oh, there's your complete human being i think irene began and stopped her voice failing you think belle Irene? oh i was going to say that all this seems to me sensible and right it doesn't disturb me why should it i think i will tell you helen that my motive in marrying is the same as yours was i surmised it oh, but you know there the similarity will end it's quite certain she laughed that i shall have no six-month vacations at present i don't think i shall desire them no to speak frankly i augur well of your marriage these words affected irene with a sense of relief she had imagined that mrs borisoff thought otherwise a bright smile sunned her countenance helen observing it smiled too but more thoughtfully you must bring your husband to see me in paris some time next year by the by you don't think he will disapprove of me do you imagine mr jacks what were you going to say irene had stopped as if for want of the right word she was reflecting it never struck me she said that he would wish to regulate my choice of friends yet i suppose it would be within his right oh conventionally speaking undoubtedly don't think i'm in uncertainty about this particular instance said irene oh no he's already told me that he liked you but of the general question i had never thought my dear who does or can think before marriage of all that it involves after all the pleasures of life consist so largely in the unexpected irene paced a few yards in silence and when she spoke again it was of quite another subject whether this sojourn with her experienced and philosophical friend made her better able to face the meeting with arnold jacks was not quite certain at moments she fancied so she saw her position as wholly reasonable void of anxiety she was about to marry the man she liked and respected safest of all forms of marriage but there came troublesome moods of misgiving it did not flatter her self-esteem to think of herself as excluded from the number of those who are capable of love even in helen borisoff's view the elect the fortunate of love she had thought more in this last week or two than in all her years gone by assuredly she knew it not this glory of the poets yet she could inspire it in others at all events in one whose rhythmic utterance of the passion ever and again came back to her mind a temptation had assailed her but she resisted it 
to repeat those verses of Piers Otway to her friend, and in thinking of them she half reproached herself for the total silence that she had preserved towards their author. Perhaps he was uncertain whether the verses had ever reached her. It seemed unkind. There would have been no harm in letting him know that she had read the lines, and, as poetry, liked them. Was her temper prosaic? It would at any time have surprised her to be told so. Owing to her father's influence, she had given much time to scientific studies, but she knew herself by no means defective in appreciation of art and literature. By whatever accident, the friends of her earlier years had been notable rather for good sense and good feeling than for aesthetic fervour. The one exception, her cousin Olga, had rather turned her from thoughts about the beautiful, for Olga seemed emotional in excess, and was not without taint of affectation. In Helen Borisov, she knew for the first time a woman who cared supremely for music, poetry, pictures, and who combined with this a vigorous practical intelligence. Helen could burn with enthusiasm, yet never exposed herself to suspicion of weak-mindedness. Posturing was her scorn, but no one spoke more ardently of the things she admired. Her acquaintance with recent literature was wider than that of anyone Irene had known. She talked of it in the most interesting way, giving her friend new lights, inspiring her with a new energy of thought, and Irene was sorry to go away. She vaguely felt that this companionship was of moment in the history of her mind. She wished for a larger opportunity of benefiting by it. Dr. Derwent and his son were now at Cromer. There Irene was to join them, and thither, presently, would come Arnold Jacks. On the day of her departure, there arose a storm of wind and rain, which grew more violent as she approached the Norfolk coast, and nothing could have pleased her better. Her troubled mood harmonised with the darkened, roaring sea. Moreover, this atmospheric disturbance made something to talk about on arriving. She suffered no embarrassment at the meeting with her father and Eustace, who of course awaited her at the station. To their eyes, Irene was in excellent spirits, though rather wearied after the tiresome journey. She said very little about her stay in Hampshire. The last person in the world with whom Irene would have chosen to converse about her approaching marriage was her excellent brother Eustace. But the young man was not content with offering his good wishes. To her surprise, he took the opportunity of their being alone together on the beach to speak with the most unwonted warmth about Arnold Jacks. "'I really was glad when I heard of it. To tell you the truth, I had hoped for it. If there's a man living whom I respect, it's Arnold. There's no end to his good qualities. A downright good and sensible fellow.' "'Of course I'm very glad you think so, Eustace,' replied his sister, stooping to pick up a shell. "'Indeed I do.' I've often thought that one's sister's choice in marriage must be a very anxious thing. It would have worried me awfully if I had felt any doubts about the man. Irene was inclined to laugh. It's very good of you, she said. Oh, but I mean it. Girls haven't quite a fair chance, you know. They can't see much of men. 
well if it comes to that said irene merrily men seem to me in much the same position oh it's so different girls women are good there's nothing unpleasant to be known about them oh upon my word eustace on n'est pas plus galant but i really feel it my duty to warn you against that amiable optimism if you were so kind as to be uneasy on my account i shall be still more so on yours your position my dear boy is a little perilous eustace laughed not without some amiable confusion to give himself a countenance he smote at pebbles with the head of his walking-stick oh i shan't marry for ages <laughs> that shows rather more prudence than faith in your doctrine never mind our subject is arnold jacks he's a splendid fellow the best and most sensible fellow i know it was not the eulogy most agreeable to irene in her present state of mind she hastened to dismiss the topic but thought with no little surprise and amusement of eustace's self-revelation brothers and sisters seldom know each other and these two by virtue of widely differing characteristics were scarce more than mutually well-disposed strangers less emphatic in commendation dr derwent appeared not less satisfied with his future son-in-law irene's scrutiny sharpened by intense desire to read her father's mind could detect no qualification of his contentment as his habit was the doctor having found an opportunity broached the subject with humorous abruptness it's no business of mine i don't wish to be impertinent but if i may be allowed to express approval irene raised her eyes for a moment bestowing upon him a look of affection and gratitude he's a thorough englishman and that means a good deal in the laudatory sense the best sort of husband for an english girl i've no manner of doubt dr derwent was not effusive he had said as much as he cared to say on the more intimate aspect of the matter but he spoke long and carefully regarding things practical irene had his entire confidence nothing in the state of his affairs needed to be kept from her knowledge he spoke of the duty he owed to his two children respectively and in sufficient detail of arnold jacks's circumstances on the death of john jacks which the doctor suspected was not remote arnold would be something more than a well-to-do man his wife if she aimed that way might look for a social position such as the world envied and on the whole he added as society must have leaders i prefer that they should be people with brains as well as money the ambition is quite legitimate do your part in civilising the drawing-room as arnold conceives he is doing his on a larger scale a good and intelligent woman is no superfluity in the world of wealth nowadays irene tried to believe that this ambition appealed to her nay at times it certainly did so for she liked the brilliant and the commanding on the other hand it seemed imperfect as an ideal of life in its undercurrents her thought was always more or less turbid a letter from arnold announced his coming a day after he arrived many times as she had enacted in fancy the scene of their meeting irene found in the reality something quite unlike her anticipation 
arnold it was true behaved much as she expected he was perfect in well-bred homage he said the right things in the right tone his face declared a sincere emotion yet he restrained himself within due limits of respect the result in irene's mind was disappointment and fear he gave her too little he seemed to ask too much the first interview in a private sitting-room at the hotel where they were all staying lasted about half an hour it wrought a change in irene for which she had not at all prepared herself though the doubts and misgivings which had of late beset her pointed darkly to such a revulsion of feeling she had not understood she could not understand until enlightened by the very experience alone once more she sat down all tremulous pallid as if she had suffered a shock of fright an indescribable sense of immodesty troubled her nerves she seemed to have lost all self-respect the thought of going forth again of facing her father and brother was scarcely to be borne this acute distress presently gave way to a dull pain a sinking at the heart she felt miserably alone she longed for a friend of her own sex not necessarily to speak of what she was going through but for the moral support of a safe companionship never had she known such a feeling of isolation and of over-great responsibility. A few tears relieved her. Irene was not prone to weeping. Only a great crisis of her fate would have brought her to this extremity. It was over in quarter of an hour, or seemed so. She had recovered command of her nerves, had subdued the excess of emotion. As for what had happened, that was driven into the background of her mind, to await examination at leisure, she was a new being, but for the present could bear herself in the old way. Before leaving her room, she stood before the looking-glass and smiled. Ah, oh, yes, it would do. Arnold Jacks was in the state of mind which exhibited him at his very best. An air of discreet triumph sat well on this elegant Englishman. It prompted him to continuous discourse, which did not lack its touch of brilliancy. His features had an uncommon animation, and his slender, well-knit figure, of course clad with perfect seaside propriety, appeared to gain an inch, so gallantly he held himself. He walked the cliffs like one on guard over his country. Without for a moment becoming ridiculous, Arnold, with his first-rate English breeding, could carry off a great deal of radiant self-consciousness side by side he and irene looked very well there was suitability of stature harmony of years arnold's clean-cut visage manly yet refined did no discredit to the choice of a girl even so striking in countenance as irene they drew the eyes of passers-by conscious of this irene now and then flinched imperceptibly but her smile held good and its happiness flattered the happy man eustace derwent departed in a day or two having an invitation to join friends in scotland he had vastly enjoyed the privilege of listening to arnold's talk indeed to his sister's amusement he plainly sought to model himself on mr jacks in demeanour in phraseology and in sentiments and not without success 
End of chapter 23